You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Imran Shamsunahar. Imran is a political risk analyst based in Kuala Lumpur. He is a freelance writer and uh, he's an expert on international security. Imran has contributed to Quillette, War is Boring, The National Interest and The Strategy Bridge. And Imran is a really wonderful writer and I'm very fussy about good writing. So um, it, I, I don't recommend writers very often, but he's a really clear and beautifully eloquent writer. Welcome, Imran. Thank you for having me. So, Imran, I have to confess um, much more, even more, let me say, even more ignorance than usual on this in this podcast interview. I know very little about uh, the region, South Asian region, and I wonder if um, if we could begin by taking, I know it's, I'm sure it's a huge subject, but if we could begin by taking a very small tour of Malaysian history. Um, what was the situation for Malaysia before independence? And um, what happened after independence politically? What's what's the kind of background you would give to an alien from outer space who landed and said, what is this place? <laughs> well, I can uh, try to go through it briefly. Um, so prior to independence in 19, uh, 1957, Malaysia was a British colony, essentially a collection of separate uh, sultanates with a myriad of different races living in it. Uh, the majority group, which is which to this day composes about 60% of the population, are Malay Muslims. Um, and they are part of the larger so-called Malay archipelago, which is composes most, most of maritime Southeast Asia. So Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, uh, some could argue Southern Philippines. Um, and besides that, there's also a large Chinese and Indian population in Malaysia. Um, the Chinese primarily from the Southern regions, um, the Chinese, the Indians as well, primarily from the South. So mostly Tamils and these latter two groups came to Malaysia during the British colonial period, um, to work mostly as, uh, kind of cheap labor in the mines and plantations. Uh, Malaysia effectively doing British rule was mostly geared to, towards providing primary resources. So rubber and tin were the two biggest um, exports. And to this day, commodities are still a big aspect of the economy. Um, so Malaysia gains independence in 1957 by doing a, it's quite a peaceful uh, transfer of power compared to other colonies. Um, essentially, there's a negotiation with the British and the British eventually decide to leave. Um, leaving Malaysia as, um, I guess, the best way to describe it is kind of a 
semi-democratic, semi-authoritarian system um, in which uh, race and religion plays a big aspect in political discourse and practice, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. So you said that the country is 60% uh, Malay and the other 40% are mostly uh, Chinese and Indians? Yes. Or the descendants of those who came over to work in the robber and tin industries, is that correct? Yes, the vast majority came during the British period, but uh, Malaysia has always been kind of historically a magnet for different peoples to settle there. So the Chinese were coming even before the British ever arrived in the peninsula. In one part of Malaysia, there's a group called the Nonia, Nonias, which are basically, uh, these are ethnically Chinese migrants who settled in Malaysia and kind of in culturated themselves into the local culture. So they they practice kind of interesting mi- mixture of Chinese and Malay customs and, and practices. So yes, Malaysia historically has always been kind of a magnet for different people to settle there. Um, Indonesians, Arabs, Indians, Chinese, um, what have you. Yeah, I, I'm, sp- I'm actually a little bit, um, I was expecting the proportion of, of Malays to be higher because I think of Malaysia as an as a Muslim country, but that's a very large, significant minority of of non-Malays and presumably non-Muslims. Yeah, so Malaysia is interesting in the sense that um, I could argue that in some contexts it's actually more diverse or more multicultural than, say, India and Indonesia, because while the latter two obviously have, I would imagine, much larger numbers of, relig- of religious and ethnic minorities. Ultimately, as I understand, India, Hindus compose about, what, 80% of the population. Um, um, I think it's uh, eight, um, more like 85%. Um, 80% right, okay. um, was so, the latest so, so. Sen- sense, uh, census. And um, 14% are 14% are Muslims and the remaining six are divided between the other uh between the other religion religious groups although they have a disproportionate influence compared to their share of population the the small groups the christian sikhs buddhists okay. etc well buddhists not so much but christians uh sikhs and parsis have a especially have a disproportionate influence so yes while malaysia is is um an, an a multicultural, multiracial country like India and Indonesia. The difference is, um, while in the case of Indonesia and India, the majority group is, you know, overwhelmingly the majority group. Um, like you said, Hindus compose about 80% of the population in India. Muslims compose about close to 90% of the population in Indonesia. Malay Muslims only compose about 60% of the population. So there's actually very large proportions of non-Muslim non-Malay peoples in Malaysia, um, which, as I mentioned before, include Indians, Chinese, and as well as um, uh, indigenous peoples. So within peninsular Malaysia, and especially in eastern Malaysia, they have um, what we would consider indigenous tribals peoples, and they tend to practice um, either kind of spiritual animist religions, or a lot of them have, have also converted to Islam and Christianity. Um, in the case of Eastern Malaysia, the majority faiths are not actually Muslim. They are actually um, Christian, as I understand. Right, right. Uh, so independence came about largely peaceably. Um, is that is that correct? True, yes, true negotiations. There was, um, 
there was conflict in the guise of a, a communist rebellion that was um, today we refer to it as the Malayan emergency. Um, but in reality, it really was just more of a civil war. But um, in comparison to, say, other kind of Cold War conflicts, such as the Vietnam War, the Indonesian War of Independence, it was a relatively small affair. And the communist rebels were predominantly ethnically Chinese. They had very little representation in the Malay community. So most scholars today believe they it was, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. The com communist rebellion would have never succeeded without majority support. Um, so in that sense, Malaysia, yes, um, independence came through largely peaceful means to a negotiation. So I gather that at independence, a party took power which, rule, which ruled Malaysia for 61 years, am I correct? Yes. A very so, long stint in power. Yeah, so um, until very recently, Malaysia has been under the same um, political coalition uh, referred to as um, Barisan Nasional or National Front. It's essentially a coalition that is dominated by the main party, which is the United Malay National Organization, as well as um, smaller component parties such as the MCA, the Malay Chinese Association, and the MIC, the Malaysian Indian Congress. Um, so it's essentially a coalition of race-based parties. Each party was set up um, to um, represent the interests of a particular ethnic group in Malaysia, uh, with the United Malay National Organization, UMNO, being the kind of the main um, force within the party. Mm. And so tell me more about UMNO. Yeah, so essentially... I. I guess beyond UMNO, I can kind of discuss the kind of evolution of Malay kind of nationalistic politics. So early on in Malaysia's independence, um, kind of the ruling elite in Malaysia uh, fought, kind of believed in a more kind of secular form of Malay nationalism. They weren't that really interested in kind of um, conservative Islam or kind of political Islam. They were more kind of interested in kind of a a secular form of Malay nationalism, which put emphasis on kind of redistributive re economics. And certainly the founding father of Malaysia, Tunku Abdul Rahman, was a fairly secular person in character. But effectively what happened starting from the 80s onwards is um, um, Malay nationalism became very much intermeshed with kind of this conservative Islam and a big aspect of that was kind of competitive politics because one of the main opposition to UMNO for a long time, for especially for the Malay vote, was um, an Islamist party, PAS, um, PAS, which themselves started off as a fairly secular Malay nationalistic party as well. But um, over time, um, due to kind of internal shifts within the party, became more um, Islamist in character and just um, became became more interested in advocating for the establishment of an Islamic state in Malaysia. And the leaders of UMNO, starting in the 80s under um, Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad, who, if you follow Malaysian politics today, is um, back as Prime Minister again at the age of 94. Yes, um, there's hope for us all. Maybe I can one day become Prime Minister of Malaysia. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of jokes now about Malaysia should basically uh, change its... Uh, 
retirement age, considering the fact that if a man at 94 can be prime minister, you really have no excuse. Basically, he's the same age as my as my father. Oh yes, he's he's a uh, he's um, he defies uh, expectations. He's uh, still going strong. And my father was born. I mean, my father was um, in his twenties when the British left India and India gained independence. So, just to give some perspective on uh, how how kind of astonishing it is to still be politically active at that age. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, Martin, Martin Muhammad himself was alive when the British were still ruling, so um, he's he's seen quite a lot to put it just put it to put it uh, simply. But essentially, what happened during Mahathir's uh, stint as prime minister, starting in the eighties, was that um, he kind of realized that um, past posed a threat to Umno's kind of electoral survival by kind of taking away Malay votes by advocating for this more kind of conservative Islam. So he decided that Umno them, themselves had to start becoming more religious in character. Um, one of his first, well, one of his uh, most, um, I think, lasting decisions was to include um, a chap called Anwar Ibrahim as his deputy prime minister. Um, Anwar Ibrahim was. A- Am I right? That's that's the guy who became famous because he was prosecuted for sodomy a couple of years ago. Is that the same chap? Yeah, he's had quite a colorful um, political career. He essentially started off as a leader of a. Uh, students, uh, Muslim students' activist movements, which were kind of your precursors to modern-day kind of um, Islamist um, uh, civil society groups in Malaysia today. Um, essentially, starting in the 80s, um, Islamist groups and kind of these groups which advocated for more political Islam became quite um, active on student on university campuses. I know in the West, people have this impression that you know, especially today, students are just kind of raging SJWs. Um, but in <laughs> Malaysia in the 80s, it was the opposite. What you had was um, the rise of political Islam among kind of student activist groups in uh, Malaysia. Um, and Anwar Ibrahim was the leader of a fairly, probably one of the most prominent um, Islamist activist groups. Uh, Mahathir, in a, to kind of tap into that, that Islamist uh, voting base, took Anwar Ibrahim in as uh, his deputy prime minister. And I think most scholars largely agree that was kind of the start of the institutionalization of conservative Islam within Malaysia's kind of political apparatus. Because with Anwar came other, his kind of um, other Muslim student activists. And soon much of Malaysia's institutions were kind of overseen by these uh, more Islamist-leaning individuals. And um, the repercussions of that has been, is being felt to this day. Anwar, I mean, as you said, Anwar was eventually um, prosecuted. Mahathir and him had a falling out after the Asian financial crisis. He was um, prosecuted for under sodomy charges, which most um, human rights groups around the world um, labeled as being politically motivated and unfair. Um, he was thrown in jail, um, released, became a fairly prominent opposition leader. Um, kind of the, he was seen as kind of the face of um, kind of political reformation in Malaysia, the Re- reformasi movement. Um, he was uh, thrown back into jail late, 
a couple of years after that, um, again on sodomy charges, and he was released um, last year following a, a change of government in May, on May eight. Yeah, I'm a little disheartened to hear that you have sodomy charges on the on your on your in your law books. It's a it's a colonial remnant. It was introduced during colonial times, but it's never been um, really. It's I mean it's obviously never been removed. Um, LGBT issues are largely a minor issue in Malaysia. There are LGBT activist groups here, so I mean they, it it does get kind of. Um, national attention and it does it is discussed within political discourse but um, for the most part most Malaysians are largely hostile to kind of gay rights and all that um, I mean obviously within the Muslim community it's it's largely seen as a taboo subject but I suppose to be fair within even non-Muslim communities like say Christians or Hindus I would imagine it's also quite taboo as well mm. Uh, mm. Malaysia regardless of your regardless of your religious orientation, Malaysians are generally quite conservative in, in terms of social views. Mm. Yes. Well, well, uh, 377, Article 377 of the Indian Penal Code was only repealed last year. Yes, um, LGBT issues, I mean, as, as I understand, LGBT issues in, in Asia has been obviously a lot more slow in forthcoming as the West, but it is happening. I mean, like you said, there was that repeal of the... Um, was it anti-sodomy law, I, I think? Or was um, it yes, a- so 377 criminalizes gay sex and um, with uh, life imprisonment. It was yes. challenged. It had been challenged earlier in the courts. Um, so it was, it was overturned in 2015 very briefly, but the, um, the repeal was challenged and the Supreme Court uh, um, overturned the repeal. Um, yes. And... Now, now, however, it has been repealed. And before the repeal, um, Indian society is also pretty conservative. Um, mm. Well, Hind- Indian Hindu society and Indian Muslim society even more so. I would yes. say that uh, the other groups are less conservative. Parsis are the most uh, liberal. Um, and obviously, there are many more liberal secular Hindus as well. But as a whole, the society is cons- quite conservative. Yes, yes, I would imagine so. Um, but the one thing that that one of the things that I think made it possible is that up until the repeal, um, the Hindu right opposed were opposing the legalization of homosexuality. And but as soon as it was repealed, they took ownership of it and they said, "Oh well, this was a British law, and we Indians have always been fine with gay people. Um, <laughs> you know, this is colonialism, so we're really happy it was repealed. Yay, we kind of Hindu values include sort of liberal liberal attitudes towards homosexuality, which which is quite untrue, but um, but." I think quite useful as far as the social acceptance was is concerned. Yeah, in Malaysia, it's it's gone a bit differently. It's the anti-sodomy laws were introduced during colonial times, such as similar to India, but um, uh, the current Malaysian leadership uh, has no interest in kind of um, repealing it or kind of um, identifying kind of um, identifying LGBT rights, um, they see it very much as kind of a quote-unquote Western thing. 
Um, and I'm certainly conservative Islam plays a big part in that. Mm. One of the impressions I have as someone not well, not uh, not at all well informed about this region, but one of the impressions that I'm, uh, general impressions I'm given is that Malaysia was a uh, one of the more liberal uh, Muslim countries, and there was a, a more relaxed, syncretic, more uh, more liberal, less literalist, less Arabicized, less Wahhabi form of Islam that was popular in Malaysia. And now there has been an increasing Islamization, increasing turn to more um, authoritarian forms of Islam. Is that right? And if so, what what happened there? What's the what are the causes? Yes, so I would say you're largely correct in that observation. Um, Malaysia, I, I would say, has has been, and I guess, still continues for the most part to be a fairly um, "quote unquote" moderate Muslim country. Um, I know within the West today, um, this issue, this this notion of moderate Islam tends to get eye rolls, but I think within the context of the Muslim world, these these terms do matter. Mm. Um, mm. And the case of Malaysia, I think it's it's historically always had a more liberal interpretation of Islam or certainly a more relaxed interpretation. Um, scholars um, identify the Islam practiced by Malaysia during the pre-colonial period and even during the colonial period as um, syncretic Islam in the sense that um, before Islam came to the uh, this Malay archipelago in the 15th century, uh, most of the Malay world's um, practice a kind of Hindu Buddhist um, religious um, kind of religious cultural practices, um, and that kind of uh, defined the kind of political systems that developed in this region. When Islam came, they kind of just incorporated that into the existing Hindu Buddhist um, culture. So what you had was kind of an Islam that was, I guess, to, to use a phrase, tamed by kind of pre-Islamic Hindu Buddhist um, practices and beliefs. Um, it's only been quite recently um, that we've seen this kind of rise of a more kind of hardline, hardline kind of, um, I guess to use the word, Arabicized form of Islam. Um, in, in today, Malaysia's, Malaysia's kind of pre-Islamic history is not really taught. Uh, most Malaysians don't really know much about it. It's not really paid much lip service. Um, I, I gather the impression that most Malays today um, seem to think that Malaysia's history only really started with the um, adoption of Islam to the archipelago. So most Malays um, are not really interested in understanding or kind of recognizing their pre-Islamic history. Um, and yeah, and that, that kind of that that is kind of um, fed this kind of this notion that Malaysia's true identity, especially the Malay, the true identity of a Malay person, is very much intertwined with the practice of Islam. Mm. To answer your question, how this developed, there's there's both internal and external um, reasons. Internally, as I mentioned, there was the competitive politics between the uh, United Malay National Organization (UMNO) and the um, Islamist Party PAS, 
And this competitive politics essentially led to this kind of like who is more holier than the other and who can kind of, you know, um, uh, show off their Islamic credentials more. So you, you, you kind of had this kind of weird and absurd kind of political competition between both parties in which they were trying to out-Islamize the other, I suppose, to the kind of detriment of, um, I suppose, more liberal-leaning Malaysians, especially Malaysia's kind of religious uh, minorities. Because I'm quite surprised that that is a winning strategy because, because just looking at the demographics, so you have 40% of the population are not Muslim at all. And then presumably among Muslim Malays, there must be some people who are, um, who are liberals. Yes. So, I mean, within the Malay community, I would say the Malays are generally quite conservative in mentality, but certainly they are more moderate, liberal-leaning types who generally you find them in the cities. So these kind of your more middle, upper, upper middle-class urbanite Malays who don't really have an interest in this kind of uh, more um, puritanical form of Islam. Um, but you're right. It's I would gather that the, the fact that Malaysia is not obviously a majority Muslim country has meant that um, Islamist politics has not taken f- has not taken full hold of the country yet. I think um, because looking at it purely from a you know in, in the context of a democratic competition, um, Islamist parties sometimes Islamist parties and Islamist candidates have sometimes been forced to kind of. Um, um, tamper down your more kind of Islamist rhetoric and kind of um, negotiate and seek compromise with more um, secular parties in Malaysia. Um, so in that, in that sense, I guess um, Malaysia's democratic system has some, some form of kind of moder- moderating influence. Um, but the problem is because, because both UMNO and PAS basically want to get to gather the Malay vote, they've always kind of they um, they've always tried to kind of get the Malay vote essentially by trying to um, promote their religious credentials. Essentially, mm, mm. it seems it's it seems politically potentially quite explosive to uh, because it has such a strong eth- ethnic component because it's setting the Islamists against the non-Islamists, but also the Malay population against the Christian and and Hindu population. Yeah, so this has always been a concern in Malaysia. Um, it's become quite a big concern as of late recently due to two main political controversies, which I'll quickly go over. The first was, um, so the education ministry wanted to introduce um, the teaching of uh, Kat. Now, Kat is basically the written form of Jawi, Jawi was the um, so before um, British colonialism, um, Malay was written and read in Arabic, um, in the Arabic um, written form. So Kat is basically the kind of calligraphy used um, for Arabic Malay. Um, essentially, they wanted they wanted to introduce it to kind of um, promote a more. Their argument is basically like this is this is part of Malaysian history and it will help kind of create this kind of um, unifying kind of um, mentality among his students by by basically introducing it as a as a subject in kind of Malay and primary teaching. Uh, many Indians and Chinese 
parents and kind of education groups became very outraged at this because they saw it as a form of kind of tacit Islamization. Um, I don't think that was necessarily the case. I think that the people who wanted to introduce it had um, good intent. They wanted to do kind of, you know, build a Malaysian um, kind of identif- identification. But because of Malaysia's kind of uh, real history of Islamization over the last few years, I, I guess you could argue that they made their fears, while I don't think were correct, were at least somewhat justified given what's been going on recently. Um, and that caused a big hoo-ha in Malaysia. It's um, one of the main ruling parties in the current opposition, sorry, in the current uh, ruling coalition, um, the DAP, Democratic Action Party, which is, it's a largely secular party, which is predominantly Chinese. Um, they got, they actually lost a lot of support and kind of, um, there's a lot of kind of rifts within the um, grassroots because of this, this, what was, what really is just a very minor issue. Um, the government eventually kind of backtracked and said that this would be an optional um, uh, study that schools could choose int- to introduce if they wished. Um, so they, they eventually kind of compromised on that. The second major issue was um, essentially some incendiary comments made by an uh, Indian-born cleric called Zaki Naik, who is... Uh, Oh goodness! Yeah, I, yeah. He was um, given Malay- he was given PR by the previous administration um, here in Malaysia. He's quite a firebrand cleric. He's been, uh, I think, banned by a couple of countries from entering due to some comments he made about um, you know just about everything really. Um, he essentially made some. He made a speech in the eastern state of Kelantan where he basically insinuated that. Um, Hindus in Malaysia were more loyal to India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi than to the Prime Minister of Malaysia, uh, Mahathir Mohamad. And then he later on made some comments claiming that the Chinese were quote-unquote guests. Um, I think this really rattled a lot of Malaysians, especially non-Muslim Malaysians, because um, he he was kind of... um, um, uh, tapping into this kind of um, racial jabs that are often thrown by kind of more nationalistic Malays, especially in social media, which is that effectively Malays are the real inhabitants of Malaysia. We were the first here. This is our land. And um, Chinese and Indians are basically guests or foreigners, and they have to kind of um, accept. Uh, I mean, they, they essentially live here by the goodwill of the of the Muslim Malays, and you must kind of accept that. So that really rattles a lot of non-Muslims here, and um, it caused a big hoo-ha in kind of uh, Malaysian politics. A lot of um, MPs actually came out and demanded that his PR be resigned and be he be deported back to India. The Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad has always been a bit protective of Zaki Naik. Um, he said uh, early on he said he didn't want to deport Zaki Naik because. Um, he he felt that he that Zaki wouldn't get a free uh, um, what's the word in the uh, free trial in India is that is that the mm-hmm. correct term um, a fair a fair trial fair trial yes sorry a fair trial in India that there was concerns that he he'd even be killed if he went back to India but I think the real reason is because um, the the current government is afraid of um, 
offending conservative Muslims here. A lot of conservative Muslims are very supportive of Zaki Naik. Um, they came out to defend him after he made those incendiary comments. Um, he's been banned from giving speeches in Malaysia as of now. Um, initially, a couple of states basically banned him from giving speeches, but I think then the police basically instituted a statewide ban on, on him giving any more speeches. Um, he's not been deported as of yet, despite even cabinet ministers dem- demanding he be removed from the country. Um, so we're basically stuck with him at this point. And, um, and did that caused a lot of ill will to among Malaysians and kind of really um, further caused cleavages within Malaysia's kind of inter-ethnic and inter-religious um, relations, which has always been kind of a, one of our primary concerns to maintaining stability in this country. Mm. Is there, talking about the racial relations, um, is there, uh, is, are there kind of Muslim areas and, and Chinese areas and Indian areas within, um, within Kuala Lumpur, for example, or is it more intermingled? Um, is there kind of ghettoization is what I'm wondering? Yes, to some extent. Basically, to put it very simply, um, the Chinese and Indians are normally concentrated in urban areas. And Malays are normally found in the rural areas, kind of the um, the villages and, and farmland. That's a very simple, simplistic breakdown of um, the kind of racial um, uh, divisions of Malaysia. Um, so normally more secular-leaning parties do well in kind of urban areas because they get most of the Chinese and Indian votes. Um, conservative um, groups tend to do better in they tend to seek votes in the more rural areas from among the um, Malay communities. And what about the relative economic um, prosperity of the different communities? So one of the things in India, just to give a little kind of parallel, or I don't know if this is a, I guess it's probably not a parallel, but um, uh, one of the things in India is that at partition, um, there there was a, strong class, middle class Muslim population in India, um, a class of, of prosperous Muslim merchants and intellectuals. And during partition, almost all of them left for Pakistan. Yes. Um, and uh, so what you had in, um, left behind was the poorer Muslims. And that has that kind of gap in that prosperity and education gap between Hindus and Muslims has has never been uh, bridged since then. So you have a, I mean, obviously there are middle class and intellectual Muslims uh, in India, mm-hmm. but the proportion is much smaller. the the co- The contrast is fairly is fairly stark if you are looking if you are talking big statistics. I mean, we all know yes. plenty of individual exceptions, but if you're talking statistically, yeah. So Malaysia, Malaysia's, um, yeah, there was there was quite a um, significant socioeconomic uh, differences between the different races and groups. So, to put it simplistically, um, normally the most fast, the most prosperous group in Malaysia are the Chinese. Um, next comes the Indians, and at the bottom are the Malays and the indigenous peoples. Um, essentially, um, the Chinese and Indians came to Malaysia quite dirt poor, like 
very impoverished, um, were mostly kind of hired to work in the kind of uh, plantations and the tin mines. Um, but over time, the Chinese in particular kind of inserted themselves as um, the term economists like to use is the middleman minority. So they inserted themselves as kind of the um, bridge between um, producers and kind of consumers in society. So they mostly worked in retail. So the, a lot, the most kind of ubiquitous image of the, of the early Malaysian Chinese migrants was um, setting up kind of shop houses and, and this image of kind of the hardworking um, uh, Chinese retail owner. Um, so much of the retail, much of retail in, in early Malaysia and to this day is largely dominated by the Chinese. Um, they are a very prosperous group, um, most educated um, and this is not necessarily unique to Malaysia. Almost all of Southeast Asia's economies is dominated by um, ethnic Chinese, whether that's Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand. Um, in the case of the Indians, um, they are slightly better off than the Malays. Um, in the, today, most Indians tend to dominate in the kind of professional um, fields, so such as doctors, lawyers, um, most some of Malaysia's most vocal activists, uh, Indians, um, people of Indian extraction. And in the case of Malays, Malays um, historically have worked mostly in, first uh, first during the colonial period, mostly in, in farming and agriculture. Um, Post-independence, um, most Malays worked in the civil service or the military. Um, and essentially, there's been, essentially, so essentially what happened in um what happened on May 13, 1969 is referred to as the uh, May 13 incident or the May 13 riots. Essentially, due to some political, dis- dis- um, political issues, um, riots broke out in Kuala Lumpur between Malays and Chinese. Um, close, uh, the, um, the most conservative estimates is about um, 600 people died. And... That um, that really kind of uh, changed um, the kind of racial dynamics within Malaysia. Essentially, after that, what happened is the Malaysian government introduced what was called the new economic policies, and these were kind of um, these were essentially kind of affirmative action policies to benefit the Malays and kind of uplift the whole community to be on a more equal to make Malaysia's kind of racial discrepancies more kind of equal. Um, so these were so basically Malays were given privileges in kind of um, government contracts in housing in university spots. This has always been kind of a um, very sour point among non-Malays um, who now f- have to compete with Malays for university spots and and stuff like that. And that's and there's been kind of a slow dismantling of that system, but. Um, but essentially, these, while these policies initially were created to kind of um, not really with um, privileging, privileging the Malay community um, particularly, but more as part of a larger goal of kind of creating a more equal society, um, essentially over time, this, these policies became very, um, they became kind of um, part of a, a larger kind of politics of patronage within Malaysia. They um, it was exploited quite a lot for kind of crony capitalism and kind of um, 
what what we found was that only a certain number, only a certain group of Malays were really benefiting it, benefiting from it, which were basically Malays who are quite well well off as it is. There's been very little kind of benefits trickling down to uh, more w- less well off Malays. The community has not mm. really. I mean, there has been some tangible benefits. You've seen more. You you have seen a rising Malay middle class. You you see more. Malays entering universities and and stuff like that, but ultimately the it the the racial discrepancies between Malaysia it, within Malaysia has not really been altered by these policies and but obviously due to political considerations it's been very hard to kind of remove them. How has Malaysian how has the Malaysian economy been developing in general? Malaysia's economy within the context of Southeast Asia has done quite well. Um, we are uh, one of the more well-off countries in the region. We um, next to Singapore, we have one of the highest um, per capita income. The uh, standard of living is quite high here compared to other countries in the region. So we've done quite well, despite the kind of rampant kind of crony capitalism and kind of corruption that is that continues to pervade much of our institutions. Yes, I was wondering how much the the rise of Islamization. Now you're talking about crony capitalism, is due to um, corruption. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the big issues in India is that people have turned to ethno nationalist parties, turned to kind of the Hindu right, and to this sort of resurgent religious fervor because of the perception the largely correct perception, actually, that secular liberal parties like the Congress Party were deeply uh, corrupt. Yes. Um, yeah, in the case of Malaysia, I think that's that's an element of that as well. Um, the Islamist Party past um, during the 80s kind of uh, positioned themselves as kind of a, um, a party of the people, if you will, a party of the Malay people in opposition to the kind of corrupt and very rampant money politics that we saw in UMNO and, and Barista National. And certainly I think um, this kind of corruption, this, this, this disenfranchisement of uh, uh, certain Malays has kind of contributed to this kind of conservative Islam. Um, but what I often, what we often find is it's the same corrupt, the same politicians who are implicated in corrupt uh Corruption, I should probably say, they have been actually they have actually been the ones that have been kind of pushing this more conservative Islam because mostly it's it's often a very cynical attempt to kind of deflect attention, um, mm, mm. because and to kind of bolster their support among the um, Malay community to the detriment of non-Malay votes. Yeah, this kind of jingoism is a really nice deflector. Um, I mean, it's, it's so much what Trump's, you know, we look at Trump, for example, and his, his mm. notions of, you know, draining the swamp, um, if you will. I mean, there is certainly, I think certainly when in the, when people become fed up with kind of corruption at the top, they might turn to more kind of hardline or, or quote unquote strongmen because they want to, um, a, a kind of new brand of politics, if you will. Yes, yes. Um and I gather that free speech is quite um, is quite resilient in Malaysia. Am I am I correct? Um, I would say largely not. So Malaysia has quite a has quite a vibrant civil society. We have quite a 
you know, active um, um, non NGOs and civil society groups and all that. Um, and we do have quite a, and especially um, posts um, with the change of government last year in May, there's been more freeing up of the media. Um, but for the most part, there are certain topics within Malaysian political discourse, which it remains very touchy and especially conservative Malays and, and Islamist groups um, are often the first to jump on any kind of criticism on these topics. Um, essentially, these topics can be, can be um, summarized as the quote-unquote three R's, which is race, religion, and royalty. So within the context of Malaysian politics, this often means particularly any kind of discourse which could be possibly viewed as um, challenging the position of Islam within Malaysia, challenging the position of um, Malaysia's sultans. We have uh, nine sultans. Uh, some states have sultans, some don't. There's, there's nine. There's, uh, and we have a rotational system where each sultan is essentially the quote-unquote supreme ruler of Malaysia for a couple of years. It's um, Malaysia follows the constitutional monarchy system similar to the UK and most other European countries. Um, but because the, because the sultans are seen as the symbolic heads of Islam, as well as the leaders of the Malay community, um, any kind of discourse which is challenging their prerogatives is seen as very, um, is seen as very touchy and in oftentimes can even lead to um, legal liabilities. Um, Malaysia still has blasphemy laws. Um, there was a man that was sent to jail, I believe, March of this year for, I think, 10 years after he made some comments that were seen as disparaging to Islam. So Islam is... Any kind of discourse related to Islam must be done in eggshells, essentially. It's still a very touchy subject. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the current government now, again, because of the Muslim vote, the Muslim-Malay vote, has no real... They don't really have a political incentive to kind of um, free up discourse in, the, in those areas. Um, so while Malaysia has quite a, a vibrant, I would say, um, political discourse and, and kind of uh, discourse within the civil and kind of the public sphere, it still has to be done within kind of certain confinements because of... Uh, um, cultural and religious taboos. The Iranian Revolution of 1979 um, really captured the imagination of more kind of um, Islamist-leaning types here in Malaysia, um, insofar as it was kind of seen as a possible challenger to um, kind of traditional Western conceptions of development and modernity. Um, so that that was one of the but that was one of the um, external factors which kind of helped influence Islamist the kind of Islamist politics in Malaysia, um, as well as um, the kind of influx of kind of Gulf Arab money and uh, money, especially from countries like Saudi Arabia, and, and uh, which helped fund these kind of more um, fundamentalist, uh, conservative-leaning uh, kind of missionary groups here in Malaysia. That, seem, that seems to be a, um, a, a global problem. Saudi funding of Wahhabist Islam. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, within within the Malaysian political discourse, um, 
this Malaysian liberals often talk about this this kind of Arabization or you know Malays starting to behave Arab like, like Arabs. Um, in so much so that I feel that sometimes the term Arab is almost seen as kind of a slur term mm. to kind of uh, denigrate more conservative-leaning Muslims. Mm. Yes, I talked about that actually with um, uh, with Armin Navabi when he was on the pod on this podcast. Okay. Um, uh, that in uh, among some of those who are opposing Islamization in Iran, there is this very ethno-nationalist slant to the opposition, and a quite frankly racist and anti-Arab uh, slant. Um, but I, I also empathize with the idea that um, Islam is increasingly becoming a monoculture. So yes. Islamization means letting go of older traditions, native traditions, ways of dressing, um, recipes and food, um, ways of worship, architecture, etc., and building minarets, putting the women into hijabs or even burqa and um, wearing Islamic dress and um, following and uh, following Islamic customs. And when I say Islamic, I mean Islamic of Ara uh, basically also Arabian Islamic customs. Yes. Is yes, that something I, that you have seen happening in, in Malaysia? Um, well, not just me, but I think, I think it's certainly been this kind of... Um, I mean, I, I've been discussing so far the Islamization of Malaysia as a kind of top, kind of top-down bureaucratic approach. But certainly, there's also mm. been kind of a um, bottom-up kind of um, changes within society itself towards a more kind of uh, pious, to become more kind of pious-leaning. There's more um, Malay women who wear hijab now, and some even wear the uh, the go so far as to wear the burqa which is not normally a common practice in Malaysia. Um, there's, there's been a kind of proliferation of mosques, of um, religious education. Um, I mean, in Malaysian schooling now, um, religious education is um, compulsory for Muslims, I think. Um, mm. So, yes, um, kind of going in tandem with this kind of increasing... Um, uh, institutionalization of Islam within Malaysia's kind of bureaucracy has been this kind of um, also increasing piousness, piousness on the part of uh, society and among Malaysia's kind of Muslims. So Imran, I want to talk to you a little bit about Western attitudes. Um, so I've been reading your Quillette. Well, I have read, I think, all your articles um, oh, you. that you've published yeah. in Quillette and elsewhere. You are such a lovely, uh, really a lovely writer. Oh, thank um, you. I've been reading your Quillette article in particular called Neo-Orientalism and the Left, which you published last year. Mm -hmm. You were talking about a, an attitude towards a kind of new Orientalism, which I have also I have also noticed, I guess, an attitude that Asia is this exotic, spiritual um, place um, of mm. sort of deep, ancient wisdom and things. Mm. And definitely when I tell people that I um, have spent a lot of time in India, they ask, oh, you must be very spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, 
And I have to say that image is also promoted by many Indians themselves. So I did encounter this uh, this um, idea, this approach within India too, of course. But I um, I think that that you talk about the way in which that romanticizes um, the East, yes, and that um, gives people a. It it prevents people from supporting or can stop people from supporting um, liberal movements, human rights um, within the East. Is that? Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. So um, I suppose the motivation to write this was um, I was noticing in Malaysia and in many parts of Asia, I was traveling this kind of rise of uh, um, the term is backpackers. So these are kind of Western mm. tourists who um, travel to many cities in Asia, particularly in Southeast Asia, and kind of um, essentially beg to kind of fund their travelings within the region. Um, they've kind of um, they've kind of developed quite a lot of hostile um, pushback from locals who are obviously upset that you know why 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 are these kind of middle class Western Western is kind of depending on the um, the kindness of uh, generally poor people in a in a poor country to fund your travels, and I think um, a reason a it reason does for- seem extraordinary. I have to say, I I think I share that opprobrium. <laughs> yeah, that it's feeling. um, it's yeah. I was kind of taken aback too when I kind of first encountered this, and I think what. What what also kind of um, developed a lot of hostility towards them is because they seem to kind of view Asia as this kind of very spiritual and kind of, to use Edward Said's term, very orientalized place, which is kind of like a, you know, kind of an exotic place for spiritual discovery. Um, And I wanted to kind of use that as a way of discussing this larger kind of, um, this kind of how many Westerners tend to view Asia, particularly within the political left, although I, I'll be the first to admit, uh, orient, this kind of Orientalism is not obviously something that the left monopolizes. Um, the right mm, also has mm. their own kind of stereotypes about Asia, which um, I also kind of push back against. Um, but I, I find that the the kind of left wing Orientalism, which is what I discuss in my piece, um, tends to tends to kind of treat Asia with this kind of hyper-romanticization and um, as a place of kind of like very, as you say, this kind of, you know, um, ancient wisdoms which have not been, you know, which must be protected from, you know, evil modernity and 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 this kind of, um, like, this, this perception that of kind of a soulless, callous Western culture. Um, and I think that kind of mentality... Um, does not help these kind of West, non-Western cultures and kind of these people within these non-Western cultures who are trying to um, promote, you know, liberalism and human rights and kind of um, respect for minorities and religious minorities and, and sexual minorities. When, because oftentimes these people are kind of pushing back against a more kind of conservative, hostile, conservative, puritanical. Um, kind of cultural hegemons 
and I feel that kind of exoticizing these cultures don't do not do them any justice. Mm, mm. It's also a collectivization. So you know, it's seeing cultures as as monoliths. Um, you know, saying, well, people enjoy doing things that way and this is good for them because it's their culture, rather than actually looking at the experiences of individuals within the culture um, and thinking in terms of individual rights and freedoms. So you may uh, you may feel comfortable with the practices for your culture or you may be oppressed by those practices and they may be imposed on you. And that depends on both your individual preferences and also where you are within that culture, whether you're a man or a woman or um, low caste or high caste or, or mm. whatever. Yes, I think that, 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 that is something I also discussed in the piece is that it, it takes a very kind of communalistic view of um, Asia as, as this kind of um, as, as, as a place which is, which is in opposition to individuality and, and it tends to emphasize kind of um, collectivism and communitarianism. Um, certainly this was a, these were notions that were pushed by kind of more authoritarian, authoritarian leaders of Asia, like Lee Kuan Yew and Malaysia's prime minister, Mohati Mohammed and um, uh, Ferdinand Marcos and stuff like that, who basically try to justify the authoritarian rule by claiming that, well, you know, what we're doing is actually in line with Asian values because um, Asians are inherently communalistic and we, we don't subscribe to this kind of Western individualism. But really, they, this was only basically just to kind of justify um, their kind of authoritarian rule. Or, well, to be fair, I guess semi-authoritarian rule as well. Um but yeah, you're right. It's it it it's not that entirely different from the kind of Western colonial mentality, which also treated Asians as kind of subordinate to their larger community. I mean, you know, Western colonial practice in India and Malaysia was, you know, they had no interest in kind of introducing um, Western understanding of individualism. They would rather rule their rule their colonies through. Um, community leaders who were henceforth representative of your larger community um, for obviously for bureaucratic um, sake. And I think the, um, yeah, the legacy of that has not been particularly conducive to kind of um, creating a more pluralistic and, and um, liberal societies. Um, I I was wondering now that you're talking about communities um, and I don't want to interject too many comparisons with India, although many are now running through my, my head. <laughs> yes. um, uh, but this podcast, this podcast is not about India. So let's, let's leave that for another time. Uh, so in India, um, famously, there is not one legal code, but there are also specific um, codes and laws for specific communities. And which is which is also a relic of a relic of colonialism that the the nationalists decided to retain. There was a lot of debate over it at the time of independence. So it's not just something that kind of hung around, mm. but it's it's something that they deliberately instituted. Is that is that at all true in Malaysia, or is there just one 
equal law on, for example, marriage, inheritance, etc., for for all groups? No. So Malaysia has um, three main legal systems. Um, there's the civil code um, or civil law, which um, applies to uh, non-Muslims and Muslims in certain cases, mostly uh, with, mostly pertaining to kind of um, criminal law or um, civil law. We have um, Sharia or um, Islamic uh, Islamic legal system, which um, in the case of Malaysia only applies to um, kind of uh, personal matters, so mostly family law, so marriage, divorce, um, inheritance, uh, things like that. Um, it as of yet does not apply to um, criminal law. There has been a push by Islamists here, um, particularly in the last couple of years, to kind of um, expand the jurisdiction of um, Sharia law in Malaysia to include um, criminal law. So the implementation of kind of strict Islamic um, legal precepts, such as the amputation of um, hands for um, theft or, you know, lashings for um, adultery. Um, So far, Islamist groups in Malaysia have not been successful in kind of um, challenging the the uh, legal separation between um, personal laws and legal and criminal laws in Malaysia and the kind of separation between civil law and, and Sharia law in Malaysia. Um, but certainly there's Islamic law has kind of, um, there's been a kind of a creeping influence where more and more of Malaysian society has been, has kind of slowly come under the jurisdiction of Islamic law. And that's kind of been a big issue recently, which is where exactly are the proper boundaries between what is under the jurisdiction of um, Islamic law and what is not. Mm, mm. The other question that I want to ask, um, Imran, is about um, how much intermixing is there of the communities? How much intermarriage, for example? Intermarriage does happen. Um in the case of Malaysia, it's a bit complicated when it's between uh, Muslims and non-Muslims because legally, um, to to marry a Muslim as a non-Muslim, you must convert. And apostasy is illegal here. Um, the uh, the uh, penalties differ depending on state. But yeah, it's it's. I mean, you you could feasibly apply to have to have your religion change from Islam, but it's almost unheard of. Mm. Um, so that that has been kind of a a barrier for intermarriage between Muslims and non-Muslims, although it does happen. But for the most part, Malaysia's kind of multicultural makeup has been increasingly defined by kind of r- rigid boundaries between the different communities. Um, we interact with each other. We you know we we you know we might share the same neighborhood. We might you know. Um, have non-Muslim friends, oh, sorry, uh, friends from different racial communities. But for the most part, I find that most um, most Malays will interact with other Malays. Most Chinese will interact with other Chinese. And most communities, for the most part, tend to um, stick together. And I, and I particularly noticed during the controversy over Kat and the Zaki Naik um, issue that there is a lot of kind of suspicion and kind of ill will between different communities, I, I find. What about uh, women's rights in Malaysia? So women are more 
represented in society, I find, certainly compared to the Middle East. Um, I find that we have, you know, we have Muslim MPs, we have our Deputy Prime Minister is a woman, uh, Anwar Ibrahim's wife. Um, he, um, we have Muslim entrepreneurs, we have, we have female entrepreneurs, um, business leaders, the prominent members of um, Malaysian civil society, as well as within the government. Um, there are still many legal uh, barriers facing women here in Malaysia. Um, particularly for Muslim women, I find that normally they tend to encounter more um, hindrances compared to their non-Muslim sisters, um, particularly when it comes to, say, marriage laws, divorce laws. I, I think the common complaint is that um, uh, Malaysia's Sharia law regarding these issues tend to be more skewed towards the men. And that's been a big con- that's been a big complaint by um, um, feminist organizations here. Um, yeah, there's for Muslim women they tend to face a lot of societal pressure to with regards to their clothing, um, what they wear, their kind of place in the family unit. Um, but yes, I mean certainly compared to other parts of the Muslim world, I think women here certainly have more of a voice and are more kind of um, let's say visible in society. Imran, what do you, how, how do you see um, Malaysia developing going forward over the next over the next few years, and what do you hope might happen, and what do you what do you most fear? Well, it's hard to say. I I tend to take a more cynical view. Unfortunately, I don't see. Why Malaysia... does that not surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't see uh, Malaysia becoming more liberal anytime soon or at least more kind of um, secular leaning I think um, as you've seen with these two as we've seen with, with recent controversies and, and moves by the government the Malaysian government the, the current ruling coalition right now is just it, it they just come across as very um, scared of of offending um, Muslim Malay sensibilities here of, and especially of losing Malay votes. Unfortunately, because of that, we will see continuous panderings to um, kind of um, race and religion moving forward. Um, I think race and religion is will play a primary role in kind of political discourse and political dis- decision making um, moving forward. And I don't see I don't see that changing anytime soon. As as long as um, as political actors within Malaysia still feel incumbent on, um, um, still feel they need to kind of pander to the Muslim vote. I don't see, I don't see any kind of uh, positive change in Malaysia in terms of moving in a more liberal, secular direction. I think, um, if anything, I think uh, <clears throat> race and religion and kind of this kind of increasing encroachment of conservative Islam is, is going to be something that will affect Malaysia um, in the coming years. So I'm um, sorry to end on a bit of a downer, but that's just my, that's just my analysis of it. Oh, okay. Well, let's hope you're wrong, Imran. Uh, <laughs> and thank you so much for being uh, such an eloquent, an eloquent uh, liberal and humanist voice, uh, as I feel you are. Thank you. Um, and it's been a it's uh, been also a delight to follow you on Twitter. I'll put your handle and other details into the show notes.
Is there anything that you have, have been wanting to say that I haven't really given you an opportunity to uh, to say? I don't know when exactly. I was, I was talking about the j- different judicial systems in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. I said three, yeah. so I'll, I'll just add one more because I think I did not mention that. Um, this is a very quick one. Um, and the final kind of legal system in Malaysia is um, uh, pertaining to Malaysia's indigenous peoples. They have their own kind of legal system. I'm not super familiar with it, so I, I won't comment on that. But that is another kind of uh, stream of, of um, legal system that's that exists in Malaysia. Mm. I'm seeing so many worrying parallels with, with India. Um, and I, I share the same kinds of fears. Um, yeah, I think... Um, Something I kind of noticed with, I, I think I commented on this on Twitter where I said that um, kind of the Malays in Malaysia kind of remind me of the Hindus in India in the case of both you have like, you have this kind of majority group which has overwhelming power kind of politically, mostly politically and economically and are in, so obviously in a dominant position, but for some reason feel, it still feel very insecure and are somehow convinced that that minority groups are out to kind of um, challenge their privileges or kind of take away their rights. Yeah, it's a it's a potential perfect storm. You have uh, slightly illuminated my almost complete ignorance about this region. So thank you so much. Okay. And I hope I can visit again sometime properly. Oh, sure. Just uh, give, give me a ring whenever you're down here again. I will. I will. Thank you, Imran. Bye-bye, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.